Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist and clinical medical ethicist. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the show. Thanks for rocking with us. Um, definitely been trying to keep the content consistent and continue with these weekly episodes out on Mondays. I've been a little busy with fellowship. As a lot of you may know, I, I recently finished my time in the Navy and went back to the civilian world, started fellowship in critical care medicine back in Chicago. So as you can imagine, it's been um, pretty busy, but so far I've been able to keep up with the podcast. And um, so thank you so much for your support. Um, please continue to bear with me. I think I posted an episode late here or there. Um, this week, I'm actually going to do something I don't do often. It's an episode where I'm just going to talk and share some stories, share some sea stories. I've had some requests for information about my experiences as a physician in the Navy. And I'm going to talk about that today. First, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, Picmonic. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Awesome. Thank you, Picmonic, for supporting the Black Daughters podcast, for um, supporting increasing diversity in our healthcare workforce. So as you probably know, I recently completed my time in the Navy. Uh, I think I have an episode from, I do have an episode previously where I talked about my experiences in the Navy kind of from a broader perspective and the reasons why I joined, a lot of it dealing with, dealing with my family. And um, I, I briefly touched on some of my experiences. When I recorded that episode, I was still on active duty. There's a lot of things that, you know, I, I figured were better left unsaid until I had officially separated from the Navy. But now I am kind of a civilian or veteran. I honestly don't fully have my DD-214, which is like that paperwork that you need to definitively be like, oh yeah, I am no longer on active duty. It's like three or four months late because of uh, paperwork issues and everything kind of in the government just runs a little slow. So as far as I know, though, I am out of the Navy. So I am going to talk about medicine on the high seas. I'm going to talk about one of the experiences that I had in the Navy. I deployed for five months aboard one of the Navy's hospital ships. We did a humanitarian aid mission. And I'm going to talk about that today and just share some of those experiences. For background, the military, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy currently maintains two hospital ships. There's the Mercy, which is ported in San Diego. It's out on the West Coast. And on the East Coast is the Comfort, Comfort and Mercy. So both of these ships are... Re refurbished, I guess, reformatted, however you call it, oil tankers. So they're they're ginormous vessels. And there's actually kind of a history of the US Navy and the hospital ships and how we treated um our our injured um shipmates, our injured service members um while abroad. And there's been, you know, different iterations of these hospital ships over the years. The concept being, you know, a lot in World War II, Vietnam, you would port 
a little bit off where the fighting is, and they'd be able to take wounded folks to the ship where there's military physicians, and we can patch them up and and help um, help them heal. So the most recent iteration, I think back in like the 90s, is when they refurbished these oil tankers and they created these two ginormous hospital ships, the Comfort and the Mercy. They're painted all white. They have a big red cross on the side. You've probably seen pictures of them because one of the ships went to New York recently with uh, the pandemic. So I was on the East Coast. I was at Naval Medical Center at Portsmouth. It was like my duty station. So I would go there to work at the hospital every day. But I was kind of my billet to deploy with was the USNS Comfort, the hospital ship. So there I was in Virginia. I had finished residency in 2018, moved to Virginia to start my time with the Navy. I had four years. So 2019, the spring was when I had news, you know, just kind of an email like, hey, you're going to go out on the Comfort when it deploys for this humanitarian aid mission. They didn't really know the timing or the dates because with the military, it's stuff's always kind of changing. So they're like, oh, you're going to leave in, in April. So start packing your stuff. And I found out in like March, it's going to leave next month. Cool. Okay, whatever. So I started to to plan to get out of there. I was trying to, you know, work on my relationship. I was in a long distance relationship. My girlfriend at the time lived in New York. So I'm trying to figure out how that's going to work. Trying to see her for a couple of times before I pull out for at least uh, five months. That's what they're saying. They didn't really know how long we're going to be gone for. It's anywhere from like three to six months. We didn't know. So of course, in true military fashion, the dates keep getting pushed to the right, pushed to the right. And we ended up, we didn't even really leave until June. But as of uh, May, I had fully kind of disconnected from the hospital I was at. So instead of going to work at the hospital every day, I would instead go to the hospital ship. It was kind of based out of the Navy base. I would drive there. I had to wear a uniform. Up until then, like I really didn't wear a uniform in the Navy because I just would wear civilian clothes in, change into scrubs, work in the ORs, and then go home. So I had to like f- pull out my uniform, get a second uniform, and like remember how to salute because we didn't really salute when we were in civilian clothes, you know, going to our, our hospital. So I would start showing up there. There was another anesthesiologist. He was senior. He was a captain, which is uh, in the Navy is like the equivalent of a full bird colonel in the Army or Air Force. So an 06, they were like a um, eagle collar device. So he was kind of showing me the ropes. We would show up. This was when it got pretty sweet because I would have to show up for like muster. Muster is just like a gathering time. So I'd show up there at like nine in the morning and there really wasn't anything to do. So then we would like peace out around 11 o'clock. And I was like, mm, this doesn't feel right. But I would jump behind the captain and uh, just follow him. We, I like carry his bag and we just like bounce out the ship. We walk down the uh, gangway, walk down the pier. We'd be out. Everybody's like jumping out of the way, saluting him. And I'm just right, right behind him. And we're calling it a day. So I had like two weeks worth of like these super easy cush days. Took some long weekends. Got to see my girlfriend at the time. And was packing my bags and making sure I had everything that I needed to deploy. The other thing that came out of this was they're like, oh, since you're kind of based on the ship, you're going to be the department head of anesthesia for the mission. I was like, okay, that's cool. I was, you know, just barely a year out of residency. So I'm like, what does that mean? I guess I should look at supplies. So I started looking at, you know, what is the plan for the mission? At the time, they're like, you're going to be doing 10 mission stops, 10 different countries. We're going to try to do 100 operations per surgery or per, uh, per mission stop. So about 1,000 surgeries. Okay, 
So my next question, you know, what kind of surgeries are we going to do? And they didn't really have an answer. There was like a advanced planning team that would go out, but that team was composed of like a random hodgepodge of people. There was like maybe like one or two surgeons, one or two anesthesiologists, and then a bunch of like like nurses, uh, nurse corps officers, so med surge or, or other people that don't, you know, typically work in the operating rooms that don't actually provide um, medical services, if you will. So they didn't have a good answer for like how many types of each surgery. So I'm like, okay, because it makes a difference. If it's an appendectomy or a close mastectomy, you know, what type of anesthesia are we going to provide? Are we going to do general anesthetics for stuff? If it's hernias, and sure, we can do general anesthetics with LMAs. We can do spinals. I'm trying to coordinate the supplies for this mission. And they're like, oh, we're going to do pediatric cases too. Okay, well, how many pediatric cases are we going to do? What are the age groups? Because I'm trying to plan like how many endotracheal tubes do I need of what size? How many IVs do I need of what size? I'm going through like this stock room that hadn't been um, sorted through since the ship like last deployed a year or two years before. I'm trying to find all these supplies. I'm trying to look through these lists. And they give me a spreadsheet that is like ridiculously long with all the names of all these devices and stuff that we need. And how much uh, anesthetic do we have? How much anesthetic gas? How much um, propofol? And the pharmacist wasn't even checked into the ship yet. We didn't have any drugs in the ship. And I'm just trying to figure out, like, what am I supposed to do for this mission? You know, what equipment do we have? What do we have for airway management tools? Are we going to be able to sterilize the blades, the laryngoscope blades? Are we going to um, be able to process uh, the glidescope blades? Do we have any glidescopes? How many do we have? Uh, do we have any fiber optic scopes? So I'm, like, going through all of this stuff on this really old ship, and I find, like, like an old school fiber optic, you know, the type that comes in like a little suitcase and you got to take it apart and there's just the eyepiece and it was like super dirty. I'm like, can we even clean these? So as I learned more about the capabilities of the ship, you know, walking around, I think we had 10, 10 or 12 operating rooms. And one of those was like an IR hybrid suite. And we had, a, you know, three bays of quote unquote ICUs a little bit of isolation rooms. There was, uh, you know, sterilization capabilities on the ship so they could clean the surgical instruments and whatnot. And so I'm like slowly learning. And then after working, I actually worked a lot for like a couple of days, like really stressing over this list of like, do we have the right tools to do this job, to do this mission safely? And then I meet with like one of the head OR nurses on the ship and they're like, oh yeah, somebody already ordered all your stuff for you, the supply officer. I'm like, well, that's great. I wish somebody would have told me three days ago so I wouldn't have stressed out over this so much. And then number two, you know, does a supply officer really know about anesthesia and what we need to safely do our job? So this is, you know, leading up into the mission. Um, fortunately, I was able to like kind of moonlight and since I was off so I could take the extra time to work at, you know, some side hustles and make some extra money. Anyways, so the day comes, you know, I'd moved a bunch of my stuff on board. I moved a bunch of my musical instruments because I'm like, you know, there's probably going to be a fair amount of downtime and, you know, I, I'll be able to like pass the time somehow. So then we, you know, my family comes down actually to Virginia to say goodbye. I spent that last weekend up in New York seeing my girlfriend and then they dropped me off at the ship and and that's it. You know, I go aboard and... Um, I was living in a stateroom for the officers. We had um, staterooms that held anywhere from like six to eight dudes. 
and uh, you know, same for the woman officers. And then for the enlisted birthing, like you're just in this big open bay room with bunk beds that are like three high. There's like 60 people to this room, right? So it's how the military does kind of like enlisted and officer. So enlisted, you typically finish like high school and then go in straight after high school. If you're an officer, you probably went to college or something. And there's like a clear distinction between enlisted and officer. It's kind of weird, kind of hard to wrap my head around because I kind of just see people as people. But the military make, makes a big divide. Like at my hospital, we even had different uh, changing rooms. Like our locker rooms was there was male officers, female officers, male enlisted, female enlisted. And there's like, you know, rules about fragmentation and what you can and can't do. Anyways, so I'm living in this um, stateroom. I'm living in these like two little cubbies with all my stuff. I had, you know, one of the guys of the Navy band. He was one of my roommates. I had a Brazilian naval officer for a roommate. I had a State Department guy. He was pretty cool. Cool to pick his brain. Um, I think a nurse or two. And then I think one of the CRNAs was in my room as well. Um, the anesthesia department was like myself and four or five anesthesiologists and then three or four CRNAs. And, you know, the plan was to run three or four operating rooms at each mission site. And again, do about a hundred cases per, per visit. So we sell out of Virginia. Um, the first stop was actually going to be Miami and we had to like take on some supplies or whatever. So we get down to Miami, like we sell away, you know, it's kind of a weird feeling to leave land. It's like a cruise, but not, not as much fun. And we're on the ship and I remember being on the helipad and, and walking around and they have this thing where like you, you man the rails. So you put on your dress white uniform and then everybody like lines up around the edge of the ship and it looks really cool. And there's like really good pictures, but I'd have like advice is like for all the stuff that you're packing, you don't need to pack like all these different uniforms, just pack your camouflage uniform. It's like your working uniform. And then we wore this like Navy blue romper for lack of a better term, or like a onesie around the ship. So I didn't pack like my dress whites or I, I honestly never even purchased the dress blue uniform. So I kind of hung out. I didn't man the rails, but we we're all out, you know, walking around the deck and then we pull out, we sell for like, a day, maybe two days. And, you know, you lose your cell phone service every now and then you get close enough to shore where you can pull out your cell phone and like get a little bit of reception. The internet on the ship is horrible. Like it takes so long just to even like pull up email from, from Gmail. And finally we could see Miami. We're like doing circles off the coast of Miami because they got to wait for the pier or the dock to clear up so they can bring the ship in. So that was cool. We show up in Miami. Um, you know, we just kind of had a little taste of what it's like to be underway. And they gave us liberty. They're like, all right, if you're not on duty, you can go out into Miami. You can explore. They gave us like set hours. Like you had to be back by like one in the morning or something. There's like a curfew. And so I was able to get off the ship. We had to have, um, what do you call them? Liberty buddies, I think. Yeah. You had to have like a buddy that you sign out with that I'm going to stick with this person the whole time like this accountability thing that the military does so even though we were in miami florida it was wild but i think you know part of that is to decrease the risk of like assault and and other bad stuff happening because you have a buddy so my buddy josh from um from college actually lived in miami so he came down we we're actually able to hang out hung out with some friends down there and then back on the ship then there's this whole thing like uh mike pence was vice president at the time so he came to the ship to take a tour. So 
they hit me up and they're like, yo, Steven, um, yeah, we want you to like do this photo op thing. They didn't say it was a photo op. They just asked, you know, like, okay, can you be in your, um, dress, dress blues, um, to like accompany the vice president on the ship. And I was like, mm, yeah. So, uh, you know, my uniform's actually like in the wash. I didn't, I didn't bring it. Remember? And then they're like, all right, well, what about the the whites? Because like in a matter of like four hours, they changed the plan from everybody wearing their dress blues to everybody wearing their dress whites. And then I was like, yeah, I don't, don't have those either. And then they're like, all right, well, what do you have? I'm like, I just got my camouflage uniform. And number two, like I really wasn't trying to accompany Mike Pence on a tour of, of anything. So I got off the hook of that one. I mean, I didn't, I just like, no, nah, like I'm, I'm good. Y'all can find some other people. So I found some other people. Uh, the vice president comes on the ship. Um, you know, got to see all like the security and people like setting that stuff up. So he goes on a tour of the ship. That's cool. It's in the news. And then we weigh anchor and we shove off. Yes, yeah, so I'm trying to remember what the first stop on the mission was. Um, looking back, so I kind of documented a little bit of it in my phone. I remember we had to sail through the Panama Canal. So that was cool. They called it, I think, crossing the ditch or something. There's a couple of things in the military or in the Navy that are like classic moments or whatever. So we had to cross the ditch. It was cool. We pulled up to the Panama Canal and um, they, we sailed through that because the first mission stop, I think, was either in Ecuador or Peru. So the rough part was like Miami to Panama because you know, we're just out to sea for a ridiculously long amount of time and no self-service, no reception, no internet. And every day was just like, you know, we would get up for muster at seven in the morning, have to meet. And then they talk about the plan of the day, which is really nothing because there's nothing to do. Although they did like set up different panels or, or what do you call them? Like committees. Cause if we were technically like a hospital at sea, so everybody was kind of like jumping on the opportunity to be head of the cardiac arrest committee or be head of the medical executive committee and all these different things. Because in the Navy, you want all this stuff to pad your uh, fit rep, fitness reports, like um, your evaluations. And it happens every like year you get an evaluation and that goes towards if you're able to promote or not. So little did I know, right? I didn't really care too much because I was pretty much... Um, for for sure going to promote to 04 and I knew in my time of service I wasn't going to promote to 05 so I didn't really need to to push or fight to to promote but it was just this, this mad scramble of everybody trying to get these different like committees and organizations so in between you know we would just watch movies cuz people would download like a ton of bootleg movies we watch movies and we would honestly just sleep we called it rack ops like your your bed is uh, called in Iraq. So you just um, uh, go to bed. Like you would get up, maybe grab breakfast. Usually I just like stumble out of bed, throw on my onesie, go up and muster at like 0700, 08, whatever time it was. You'd stand in detention, you say the Sailor's Creed. And then they'd be like, all right, it's the plan of the day, which really wasn't anything. And then I would go back to bed. So we called it uh, Rack Ops or, or Rack to the Future. You would literally just sleep to pass the time, get up, eat lunch, go back to bed. Um, you know, there's other stuff to do. Like there was some spin bikes that they brought on the ship. There's a little gym, but it was all kind of crowded and, and gross. So 
We sailed through the Panama Canal. We made it to our first mission stop. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I wanted to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at truelearn.com. And again, remember to use the code BDPODCAST to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. So some of the countries we visited, we went through the Panama Canal. I think our first mission stop was in Ecuador. So Manta, Ecuador, we were there for a week. Each mission stop was about a week. We went from Ecuador to Peru. We went from Peru to Costa Rica, from Costa Rica to Panama, um, Panama City. We sailed back through the canal and then we hung out in Panama City for a Liberty port. So we were moored for like two or three days. We could get off the ship and spend like two days on land and like experience Panama City and, you know, just like sleep in a hotel, get some good food. Still had to have a Liberty buddy um, technically on paper to like go everywhere with and make sure nothing bad happened. We went from Panama City to Liberty Port to Cologne, Panama for a mission stop. You know, it's been a week there. We spent a week in Colombia. Um, Santa Marta, Colombia, doing surgery. We then had a Liberty Port in Curacao. By now, it was like September, right? Remember, we left in June. It's September now. We stopped in Curacao. I was lucky to have my girlfriend fly out. And even still, it was like this thing where like we were there for three days, but technically you were only supposed to have two days off because you would have been you would have had to hold duty on the ship, which means like you just have to stay on the ship just because because we didn't really, you know, we didn't sell the ship. We didn't do anything to like make the ship run. There's a whole uh, civilian mariner crew, but like military tradition means that somebody has to like be on the ship at all times. So I was able to work out something where I was able to spend all three days with my girlfriend. So that was cool. Curacao was amazing. We went from Curacao to Trinidad and Tobago. And from Trinidad and Tobago, we went to Grenada. I um, got to stop at the uh, St. George's University School of Medicine down there and meet with some of their students. Uh, from Grenada, let's see, we went to St. Lucia. That was cool. That's when, um, let's see, Dr. Uh, Dr. Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General of the United States, he had kind of flown down. So we got to meet him, work with him. He came to the operating rooms and we did some anesthesia together. And from there, we went to St. Kitts and Nevis, Nevis, however you say that, and the Dominican Republic. That was mission stop number 10. Kingston, Jamaica, we stopped at. Then Haiti was the last mission stop. And we ended up sailing back to the U.S. in late November. 
So for each of those mission stops, right, we would show up the first day we would weigh anchor off off uh, port or whatever. And the we, we, we went out with a helicopter squadron. We'll do just two helicopters, SH-60 Seahawks. So I think they're called the Dragon Whales. And this helicopter was a kind of a support detachment. So we would fly a lot of our supplies out because each place we went to, we would have two medical engagement sites, which provided like primary care services. So they would fly off all this equipment from the ship for like the day before there'd be um, forklifts and whatnot, putting all of the pallets onto the flight deck. Helicopter would fly off. They would pick up the stuff, drop it off, drop it off, come back, pick it up, drop it off. And then the crew would go out to help set up the engagement site. That was day one. Day two, the operating room services would go out. So the surgeons, the CRNAs, anesthesiologists, OR nurses, we would go out to one of the medical engagement sites and we would work all day screening patients. We would try to screen a hundred patients in one day. So we were super duper busy. They made a big deal like, Oh, don't go outside the wire. Don't leave the medical engagement sites. Mind you, like we're in like Ecuador, Costa Rica. And then people are acting like for, for security purposes, you can't leave. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. So I would always try to order like Uber eats or whatever that country's equivalent was just to get some food that was different from the food we get on the ship. So we would see a lot of patients and we would screen them and we was all paper charting and we'd look at, you know, the medical history and, and make sure they're appropriate to come on the ship because our resources were, were still fairly limited. And the briefing that I got from my anesthesia department before we left was like, Hey, you got to be careful when you're doing these humanitarian aid missions because you know, any bad outcome is like a really big deal. It's like an international incident. We're providing free, services and we're trying to help people but um you got to be very careful because you can really your altruism can really get out of hand and then something bad happens and you know it's it's just it's bad politically it's bad for the patient it's bad for the mission so i was very careful about setting out strict kind of guidelines for preoperative evaluation i took what they used at the last mission actually liberalized a couple of things so we let on like folks that were bmi up to 30 Five. I think the previous mission, they cut the BMI at, at 30. What else? I liberated some of the blood pressure goals. So we would take patients with uh, systolics under 190 and diastolics under 100 was kind of our one of our main limits. And so it was kind of a learning on the fly, like how to manage uh, anesthesia department, how to parlay with the surgeons, how to get along because there's the other folks that are running the mission that are like the higher ups and you know, a lot of stuff that we would do would get reported up. So if we had to cancel a case, you know, there'd be people wanting to know why. Um, if we couldn't support certain cases, then, you know, what's what's going on. So in terms of surgical capabilities, we deployed with one orthopedic surgeon. We deployed with a pediatric surgeon. We deployed with, I think, three or four general surgeons. Um, we had an oral maxillofacial surgeon as well and a plastic surgeon. There was also a urologist that joined us halfway through the mission. And then we had two ophthalmologists. We also had some other um, help from foreign militaries. So we had um, an ophthalmologist from Mexico. In the Mexican army, we had two Canadian oral surgeons. We had a Brazilian orthopedic surgeon and um, I think a Brazilian uh, general surgeon. 
So that was kind of the team, and that's how we kind of screened the cases, whatever was appropriate and within their their purview. So we would go ashore, we would look at over 100 plus patients, and then we kind of book each subsequent day, each subsequent operative day. And, you know, we, we'd plan for, you know, about 12 to 15 surgeries a day and, you know, get up to like 100, 120 cases for the week that we were there. It was always tough because eventually we'd start to run out of spots and we'd be like, oh my, oh man, we got to like turn people away. And a lot of times there's just tons and tons of people at these facilities, at these medical engagement sites, they'd be lined up to come see us and hopefully get surgeries. And and mostly what we would do is like hernia repairs and uh, cholecystectomies and lipomas. And then the plastic surgeons and oral surgeons would do cleft lips, cleft palate um, stuff. And then the orthopedic surgeon wasn't super busy, but um, that's mostly what the surgical cases were. So after a super long day of screening patients, we would go back on the ship they would bring that first group of patients to the ship and, you know, get them in the wards. And then we would prepare for the cases the next day. We'd show up, we'd have a plan and just start um, doing anesthesia. I even liberalized kind of the staffing model. So we would have an anesthesiologist kind of running the board and covering the recovery unit and, and other medical emergencies aboard the ship. And then everybody would do their own cases. Um, the military, there's the anesthesiologists do their own cases. The CRNAs practice unsupervised, so they would everybody would just do their own cases. And we always had an anesthesiologist available to help with case starts or help out in case of emergency. And then we had different corpsmen that were our our anesthesia techs and kind of medical techs. So we would start up at seven. We'd um, you know start doing cases, and they'd operate and. You know, we might break for lunch or we just eat lunch whenever we could in the middle of the day and then finish up around like five o'clock on four or five o'clock on most days. The patients would spend the night on the ship. That same day, they would bring on patients that we'd signed up for, for surgery. The next day, that new group of patients would have surgery. The last group of patients would go home and then um, that new group would join. So it was kind of this revolving door of patients and they'd have to take them across in like a, a water taxi. Um, sometimes they flew them on by helicopter. So that's kind of how we worked each site. And we would just operate for six days straight. Ideally get up to like, I don't know, um, 100, 100 plus patients per mission stop. So super tiring. By the end of the week, we'd just be exhausted. And then once we were done, the, the last of the patients would go back ashore. The helicopters would go out, pick up all of the equipment and pallets from the medical engagement sites. Then we would pull the anchor up and then head on to the next destination. So we did that again and again and again. Then we stopped at some Liberty ports. That was cool. Except for all the rules, they would literally like give us a briefing. So in Panama City, um, you know, there's some drama. Like the 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 biggest like thing about this humanitarian aid mission was that this is like in large part kind of propaganda or our show of goodwill towards. Um, South America and the Caribbean. So it was, it was very, as we started to realize halfway through the mission, like we weren't just there to help people. It was very political, right? It's the United States government fostering goodwill to our neighbors in the Caribbean, Central America, and South America, right? Because of the whole border issue. Um, even going back in history, the banana wars and people that our government's actually assassinated down there. When we invaded Panama, like there's always like stuff in our history, and I guess part of this 
healing process is us going down there and providing free medical care. So in, in that context was like kind of how they would give us these briefings for when we go to these different countries. So we had a Liberty port in Panama and they're kind of like had a state department person come and talk to us about like, Oh, there's like this history. And like the, you can go back and read about the invasion of Panama and like what kind of sparked it, but there's, you know, some, some shady stuff that, you know, our government was mixed up in and we definitely invaded a sovereign country. So they're like, yeah, some of the folks in Panama might not be too happy about that. So, you know, move accordingly, be careful, like, don't be a loud, you know, obnoxious American military person. Kind of common sense if anybody, if you've ever traveled abroad, but, you know, a lot of these folks are are really young and they just, you know, kind of don't want to get into trouble. So they would have like green zones and red zones and, and they'd show us a map and like, you can be in this area and you have to have your Liberty Buddy and you can't go here and you have to be in on curfew. And so that sucked a little bit of the fun out of the the port, but it was just nice to like be in a hotel and, you know, have a nice clean shower, eat good food. So that was a Liberty port. And then about halfway through the mission, because before like we would show up to these different countries and they would say, don't go outside the wire. You can't like, we could not leave the ship. There was like, there's kind of, um, um, contentious because as the physicians and other folks that we were just there to work, but then there was like, like the senior enlisted, like the chiefs and other people that had like kind of inside jobs, like they were managing the medical engagement sites or they had some other position and they had some kind of like cover where they could just go ashore and hit the bar and like, you know, do whatever. Meanwhile, we're just all stuck on the ship. So we spent a lot of time watching movies, watching series and just sleeping. And I remember, you know, for the relationship, like it was tough because to be out where you could, you know, you didn't have cell phone service in most parts inside the ship. So you had to go outside the ship to get cell phone service. But to go outside, you had to have your onesie on if that was like after working hours. Because during working hours, you're supposed to wear your type three uniform, which is like the camouflage. So boots and pants and blouse and all this stuff. You had to get dressed up just to go outside and try and talk on the phone. So that was like super duper annoying. And then, you know, trying to catch my girlfriend at the right time. And she's got a whole life that's going on and she was changing jobs and all this other stuff. So it was super tough on our relationship, but we, we made it through. Like there was even rules like, Oh, you can't sit down on deck. Like you couldn't bring a lawn chair out and just sit down because it didn't look good. It was all this other stuff going on. Then there was like military police folks that would like walk around the ship and, kick you out if you weren't in dress code anyways it's neither here nor there so we went to panama we had a liberty port we had a couple more mission stops and then um we went to our other liberty port in curacao some of the stops like we would usually uh anchor off the coast and then we have to take like little liberty boat liberty boats so we go down to the bottom of the ship we would um board a small boat and then just travel ashore to the pier and then we'd jump on a shuttle bus, and then we'd take the bus to the medical engagement site. I think in Costa Rica, it was so far away that they helicoptered us in and out. So we would board the helicopter, and then they'd fly us to the medical engagement site, and then they would fly us back. That was like was kind of cool, except you know the whole helicopter thing just didn't look super safe because you would see like the helicopter squadron, and you know all these people are like really young. There's not a whole lot of old people around because they're all like high ranking usually if you're older but 
you, you, there's a bunch of young people and you would see them pull these helicopters out on the flight deck. You would see them at like five, six o'clock in the evening, like take the helicopter apart, like, like entirely the entire motor that spins the, the rotor would just be wide open. They're out there blasting music um, and just working on the freaking helicopter and putting it back together, taking it apart. And I'm like, um, yeah, y'all want me to get on that and fly. And then one of the helicopters, because there was two, one of them was like always broke. They had to like fly some actual like mechanics from, you know, whoever, Northrop Grumman or whoever, like uh, Sikorsky, I don't know. They had to fly the, the mechanics out to actually fix the helicopter. And then you'd see him like, okay, we fixed it. And then the pilots would take it up and like test fly it around the ship. I'm like, oh my God. So as cool as it sounds, like take a helicopter into work. Like I was really not trying to take those helicopters. Um, so then otherwise we would just take a, a ship and that was our commute. But we spent a lot of time, you know, we would play cards. We would watch, have movie night. We would, and just sleep. Like I've never slept so much just to, to pass the time. So that was the mission halfway through, you know, I'm like the supply person, the department head. I'm trying to keep track of all the stuff. Remember the beginning when I was like super worked up about, Hey, we need supplies. How many cases are we going to do? Um, how many pediatric cases? So I've been doing a pretty good job. And then like, you know, things were going too smoothly and we ran out of circuits for the anesthesia machines. You're like, okay, well, that's kind of a, a problem, but you know, you can actually like reuse the circuits as long as you have a filter on it. So I'm like figuring this stuff out. I'm like, all right, we can do this workaround. It's, you know, safe, it's FDA approved and all that. You can, and I'm like trying to read up on this stuff on the the internet that works super slow. I'm trying to read up on it with my phone, you know, when I have service about how can we navigate this since we're running out of circuits. So cool. We can put filters on them and we can reuse the circuits a couple of times and we can use them for the day, whatever. Well, then we start running out of circuits and we're like, oh my God. So, and we only got mail like three or four times this whole period. And then we'd have to schedule like, um, what do you call them? Unreps at sea where there'd be another ship that comes next to us. And then we would hook up with ropes and then it would give us fuel. They would give us supplies. So I had to try to like schedule all of this stuff in advance and, and, forecast what we would need so we ran out of circuits we ran out of filters and everybody from the high up was like oh no how are we going to do this mission how are we going to continue on and i'm sitting there brainstorming we're in the caribbean at this point i'm like well i know guantanamo bay in cuba is like a little ways away i'm like hey there's an option we can fly up there because i'm sure that hospital i'd actually um deployed to gitmo for a month before this I'm like, I know they have supplies. We can get them from them. So I presented that option. And then I remembered like there's this um, kind of contingency plan of supplies in case we had to actually go to war. And I was like, hey, well, actually, there's this contingency plan that's in the storage hold so we can go get that stuff if we need it. Um, so that's what we ended up doing um, just to get through that mission stop. Finally was like, the, the drama, right? Because as you work with other healthcare professionals, you work with surgeons. I, I'm the department head of anesthesia, but I'm also like very junior ranking. I was a lieutenant at the time, so 03. I actually promoted to 04 um, just towards the end of the mission. But I, uh, you know, eventually like one of the medical engagement sites, the anesthesia folks ended up not going ashore. And so the surgeons just went buck wild and just let everybody on. I was like, yo, we went through 
all of this criteria for folks to be eligible for surgery on the ship. So they brought this guy on that had a hernia, but he was morbidly obese, and his blood pressure was like 220 over 110. I'm like, oh my God, like, like we talked about not having bad outcomes and being very risk averse. And so I had to kind of dig my heels in. I went to the director of surgical service and I'm like, hey, this guy, like, he's not an ideal candidate for us to do surgery under these conditions. And the surgeon was like, all right, well, he's here now. And it would look really bad for us to send him back ashore without um, having a surgery. And I'm like, well, and, and it was like one of those things where you aren't really planning on getting into any con- conflict and, and like, how do you manage the situation? You don't really learn this in medical school. You don't learn it in, in life. It's just, I, I guess as, as stuff happens. So at this point, the only thing I could say was like, I was like, well, um, cause there's other anesthesiologists that were more senior than me. There's even some CRNAs that had more rank than I did. I said, Hey, as a clinician, as an anesthesiologist, as a physician, I, it, he is not, an appropriate candidate for me to provide anesthesia for. And I left it at that. And then somebody else ended up doing the case. And as far as we know, things went okay. Um, but that was one of the first times I've had to like really like dig my fil- dig my heels in clinically. Looking back at the nature of the mission, like, you know, it, it brings up so many concepts in with regards to humanitarian aid, to ethics, um, that kind of that, that I think it's called like, I don't want to misspeak the white knight or the white savior model of humanitarian aid where you show up and you do always good for the community and then you leave. And what's been pushed more recently and what's been encouraged is those groups where you go in and partner with the local communities and you give them transferable skills. And so when you leave, they are able to continue on with uh, improved standards of care. So that was one issue. Number one, number two was the whole like political nature of the mission. I talked with one of the senior enlisted folks from the command because for this mission, there's actually three different command structures. So there is the hospital. Uh, there was a hospital uh, with our commanding officer. There was the civilian mariners. Those are the folks that are like merchant marines that actually like sell the ship, and and they just like live at sea pretty much and live on the ship. And then third was the um, Desron, like the, 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 this was a big Navy representative, essentially, because as physicians and nurses, we don't really work with big Navy in terms of what the mission plan is and communicating with other service ships. But there's a Commodore of the the task force, essentially. And he was like the head honcho for his term, as far as big Navy was concerned. So... He was on his own agenda. So while we were out like doing surgeries and providing services for the local population, he was out like golfing with heads of state and breaking bread with all these political figures because that was like the real nature of the mission was they want to go and and um, parlay. And, you know, I don't know what all the topics were. Some of the stuff that got filtered out was like, um, what we call it, like drug interdiction in Costa Rica or in Central America, rather. Um, Some of it was um, religious extremism in one of the countries in South America. And there's always other other underlying issues. We were just like kind of up front for for, 
uh, you know, give us a, us a reason to to be there. So that was uh, the two two of the interesting things, and then number three was just like, you know, the the leadership, the morale, like we were, we were really coddled and and didn't have a lot of like freedom, and um, everything was very restrictive, which eventually began to like kind of take a toll on on people's mental health. So there was sailors that would have to get sent home early because of um, mental health issues, and just depression, and and it was kind of rough to experience and see that but um um overall it was a very interesting experience one that i think i'm glad that i had five months at sea was a super long time but again i I grew so much with regards to leadership and operating room management management of anesthesia group and it i guess strengthened my relationship with my girlfriend or at least you know it didn't destroy our relationship Thankfully, though, it got pretty close at times. So, yeah, for all those folks that out there that have asked me about my experiences in the hospital ship, because so many people join the Navy, they're like, oh, I want to be on the ho- on the Mercy or the Comfort. And it's like, you really don't know what that means until you're out there. But it will be a memorable experience one way or the other. Happy to discuss further. If you have any specific questions, I think I have a link on my website for questions about military medicine and my um you know my inbox is always full on instagram i have a ton of pictures from the deployment like if you scroll back you have to scroll back to like 2019 on my instagram page it's at stephen bradley md if you go back to 2019 you'll see a bunch of pictures and images from when i was deployed in this humanitarian aid mission um so if you're curious you can you can go back and check that out so let me know um you know appreciate any and all feedback on the show if you leave a comment or a message or a rating wherever you listen to the show whether it's on spotify um itunes or, or apple podcasts would always appreciate your feedback thank you so much for listening uh, i'm gonna try my best to keep the content coming a little busy with uh fellowship but so far we're making it work um, I, I hope you enjoyed kind of this sea story there's a couple more of these coming Um, based upon your response. But thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. We do this because representation matters.